Hello, listeners. Scott Ferguson here. The Money on the Left Editorial Collective is proud to share something special and a bit different from our usual offerings, a recent talk by English literature scholar Rob Hawks. The full title of Hawks's lecture is The Power of Money is So Hard to Realize, Literature, Money, and Trust in George Gissing's 1891 novel New Grub Street. In the talk, Hawks draws out urgent, though regularly overlooked linkages between modern money and modern literature. Plumbing previous scholarship dealing with correspondences across literary and monetary spheres, Hawks critiques orthodox, liberal conceptions of trust, understood as a kind of ineffable market confidence born of individual faith in private exchange. Instead, he teases out of New Grub Street analogs between monetary trust in macro-scale provisioning institutions and literary trust in genres such as realism, naturalism, and melodrama. In doing so, Hawks uncovers fresh critical impulses in New Grub Street that at once lambast widespread inequality and injustice in Victorian Britain, imbricate the difficulties of political economy in the problems of literary form, and hint toward an alternative vision of monetary and literary trust rooted in questions of collective care. A little bit about our presenter before we get going. Dr. Rob Hawks is Senior Lecturer in English Studies at Teesside University in the UK. He's a fellow of the English Association and a member of the Executive Steering Committee of the British Association for Modernist Studies. He is the author of a scholarly monograph titled Ford Maddox Ford and the Misfit Moderns, Edwardian Fiction and the First World War, which came out through Palgrave Macmillan in 2012. And he is co-editor of several related books on Ford Maddox Ford as well. Recently, he contributed an essay titled Openness, Otherness, and Expertise, Uncertainty and Trust in Stuart Lee's Comedy Vehicle to the Collection Comedy and the Politics of Representation. And he is now working on a monograph on literature, money, and trust from the 1890s to the 1980s. To contact Dr. Hawks, you can email him at r.hawks, H-A-W-K-E-S, at T-E-E-S dot A-C dot U-K. Or you can find him on Twitter at R-O-B-B-H-A-W-K-E-S. We'd like to extend a big thank you to the English and Creative Writing Research Seminar at Teesside for hosting and giving us permission to share Hawks's lecture with you here. If you enjoy this and other offerings from the Money on the Left Editorial Collective, please consider subscribing to our Patreon so that we can be sure to compensate the intense behind-the-scenes labor that supports our ongoing project. Subscribers receive access to premium offerings, such as video and audio lectures from my own course on the neoliberal blockbuster. But for those who are experiencing financial hardship, know that this is in no sense a hard paywall. So just contact us through our various Twitter or Facebook accounts, and we will happily set you up with a membership free of charge. Thanks again for listening. And now, with no further ado, we present Rob Hawks on literature, money, and trust in George Gissing's 1891 novel, New Grub Street. Thank you all for coming. I'm, I'm really appreciative of your of your time, and um, um, I'll be very grateful for any any thoughts and comments and questions on this. This is um, work in progress, and I think towards the end gets gets quite <laughs> work in progressy. So this paper argues that George Gissing's New Grub Street uh, interrogates, challenges, and enacts trust in complex ways and on multiple levels, simultaneously activating and undermining the expectations of readers while foregrounding concerns about poverty and wealth, the corrupting influence of markets, and the elusive yet pervasive power of money. I'm making this claim in the context of a 
broader research project on literature, money and trust from the 1890s through to the 1980s. And it's my contention in this larger project that literature demands, depends upon, problematizes and performs trust in unique ways and that this is an important and yet critically neglected aspect of what makes literature literature. Furthermore, I argue, since money also relies upon, complicates and in certain contexts erodes trust, that we stand to gain in our understanding of literature, money and trust by rethinking and reimagining this trio of terms and the dynamic relationships between them, literature, literature and trust, trust and money, money and literature. And as I've argued in some of my previous work, genres play a critically important role in encouraging the reader to place a form of trust in the literary text. This is because genres provide the basis for the generation of expectations about the kind of experience a text will provide. One way of thinking of trusting um, has to do with the imagined or projected satisfaction of expectations. I trust you because I believe or I'm confident that you will behave in a certain way in the future. Although I think this is a this is a view of trust that, that I'm quite keen to to challenge and com complicate as well. But certainly the feeling of disappointment, if not of betrayal in response to a text that does not match up to our expectations is probably one with which we're all familiar. And I argue that genres play a vital role in establishing and shaping these expectations. On the other hand, literary texts can seldom, if ever, be relied upon to follow rules and conventions in their entirety, to satisfy completely or conform in full to readerly expectations or to serve the purposes of a predetermined interpretive project. That's to say that literature invariably frustrates the reader who approaches it having decided in advance how the reading experience will unfold. Indeed, as Derek Attridge argues in The Singularity of Literature from 2004, the setting aside of preconceptions and prejudgments about a literary text is an essential element of what he calls responsible reading, which is thus founded on an uh, quote, openness to alterity, a willingness to be surprised and challenged by the otherness of the work. As Attridge puts it, quote, to read a literary work responsibly is to trust in the unpredictability of reading its openness to the future. Uh, literary texts, in other words, demand trust and yet are inherently and indeed necessarily untrustworthy. So the, gen the, the genres that I want to focus on in this paper are realism, the category that New Grub Street both operates within and explicitly explores and debates through its characters, and melodrama, a much more fleeting, but I argue no less significant element of the novel's generic makeup. For, for some, mode would be a more appropriate label for both for realism and for melodrama, since both transcend more specific or narrowly conceived generic categories, including the distinction between fiction and drama or, or between literature and non-literary art forms such as film. However, while this is a discussion worth having, it's not one I've, I've really got space to enter into here. Moreover, if melodrama and realism are better understood as modes or tendencies rather than genres, it, might, it, it, it remains my contention that both categories function as critically important frameworks for trust. Knowing that the text they're about to read is either a realist or melodramatic work will generate markedly different expectations for the majority of readers. Significantly though, both Victorian realism and melodrama tend to fixate upon money, which functions as the driver of plots, a key market of character and a dominant thematic, thematic concern in innumerable texts. From Pride and Prejudice's single man in possession of a good fortune to the protagonists of Dickens and Gaskell's Condition of England novels experiencing hard times and from Dorothea Brooke and her, uh, her renunciation of Mr. Casabon's fortune to Trollope's enigmatic bullying swindler, Augustus Melmot, 
it is a truth universally acknowledged that the inhabitants of 19th century realist fictions are invariably defined by and in relation to money. Indeed, if we turn to uh, a textbook definition from the Oxford Companion to English Literature, we learn that in the 19th century, realism turned away from the visionary or heroic ideals of romanticism in order to depict unheroic lives, usually of the middle or working class, commonly in unglamorous provincial settings, and to offer accurate and credible descriptions of imperfect characters, i.e. neither perfectly villain, virtuous nor perf purely villainous, within specific and social, uh, uh, specific material and social circumstances, stressing the inescapable pressures of economic necessity. And I think many of the terms in that short quotation are very interesting. First, the emphasis on realism's lack of moral polarization, it's, it's neither heroic nor villainous characters, provides a clear contrast to melodrama's insistence on clear-cut heroism and villainy. Second, the reference to realism's uh, credible descriptions introduces a crucial element of trust. Realist fiction needs to be believable or, in other words, trustworthy. Finally, with the emphasis on economic necessity, all three of my key concerns in this paper, literature, money and trust, are in play in this short entry from the Oxford Companion. Unsurprisingly, though, uh, this is far from the only intersection between Victorian realism and money in critical discourse. Um, Patrick Brandt, uh, as Patrick Brantlinger puts it in Fictions of States from 1996, from Defoe onwards, realistic fiction at least is always in some sense about money. And as George Levine, one of literary realism's most eminent critics argues, money becomes the pivot, implicit or explicit, on which 19th century realist fiction turns. Certainly whatever the ostensible issues, there can be no success in the world of Victorian realism without money, however disguised its sources. Furthermore, while the inescapable pressures of economic necessity highlighted by the Oxford Companion are understood to be constitutive of the very reality that literary realism has continu continually sought to represent, generations of Marxist critics have also highlighted the historical circumstances of the realist novel's rise to prominence in the 19th century, coinciding as it did with the age of industrial capitalism, and hence have argued that realism's privileging of the bourgeois individual, both formally through, the example, through, through for example, the ad adoption of an autobiographical narrative mode, and thematically by foregrounding trajectories of self-discovery and self-realization, function to reinforce capitalist ideology, and the reproduction of its conditions of economic inequality and exploitation. Um, as Alison Schumpweiler and Lee Claire LeBurge highlight in their introduction to uh, 2014 volume on the concept of capitalist realism, the term brought to prominence by the late Mark Fisher in his short but incisive 2009 book of the same name. Capitalist realism is both an old and a new concept for literary studies. Realism, after all, has long been considered the aesthetic mode most intimate to capitalism. It is this intimacy that, in the view of its admirers, generates realism's depth and incisiveness of critique. It is what, in the equally compelling view of its detractors, fatally compromises the realist project, producing the very subjects and objects that the mode claims to document. Despite the the, the contrasting points of view, however, Schunkweiler and LeBerge suggest that both groups of critics would, quote, most likely agree on the redundancy of the prefix capitalist. All realism is already capitalist. So whether we look to the apparently neutral dictionary style definition of a literary companion or textbook or to the more overtly political readings offered by, by um, uh, or outlined by critics such as Brantlinger, Schunkweiler and LeBerge, it's clear that literary realism and money are inextricably interconnected. In stark contrast to realism, with its emphasis on credible descriptions of neither heroic nor villainous characters, melodrama operates according to what might be regarded as an entirely opposite set of principles. 
described by Peter Brooks in the melodramatic imagination in 1976 as the mode of excess. Stage melodrama was typified by exaggerated gesture, sensational action and moral polarisation, a clear cut distinction between good and evil. Significantly, however, although it may have responded to the same conditions in markedly different ways, melodrama emerged under strikingly similar conditions uh, to literary realism. As Brooks highlights, melodrama is, quote, a peculiarly modern form, end quote, that originated in the aftermath of the French Revolution in the, eight, uh, the late 18th century. Furthermore, classical melodrama's characters, settings, plots and central preoccupations all bear the stamp of the age of industrial capitalism. Think, for example, of the iconic images that I think continue to spring to mind at the mere mention of melodrama today of say protagonist tied to the railway tracks as a steam uh, steam train approaches or to some or, or, or tied to some murderous piece of machinery in a factory in his uh, 2001 book melodrama and modernity ben singer argues that poverty class stratification uh, and exploitation job insecurity workplace hazards heartless contractual systems of housing and money lending, these and similar components of the new capitalist social order played prominent roles in the narratives of classical melodrama. Singer goes on to characterise melodrama's polarised morality as a symptomatic response to the conditions of insecurity and radical uncertainty of capitalist modernity. Classical melodrama reacted to modernity in a somewhat paradoxical, but nevertheless common psychological binary response. On the one hand, melodrama portrayed the individual powerlessness within the harsh and unpredictable material life of modern capitalism. On the other, it served a quasi-religious ameliorative function in reassuring audiences that a higher cosmic moral force still looked down upon the world and governed it with an ultimately just hand. In different ways and with strikingly contrasting emphases, then both realism and melodrama reflected the uncertainty, insecurity, anxiety and inequality that marked the age of industrial capitalism. Furthermore, both, both genres consistently fixate upon the topic of money. So um, I now want to turn to a literary text that I argue exemplifies the issues at stake in this paper. George Gissing's 1891 novel, New Grub Street. And as uh, Simon James puts it in his book, Unsettled Accounts, Money and Narrative in the Novels of George Gissing from 2003, the subject of money preoccupies Gissing more than it does any other novelist in English literature. In no other writer is the presence of money and the, and the universalizing hold of commodity relations on modern social life so continually present so insisted upon both by the language of narration and by the shape of the plot, end quote. And an examination of New, New Grub Street would certainly appear to support James's thesis. From the central figures of Edwin and Amy Reardon, Jasper Milvane and Marion Yule, to the wider cast of characters, including Harold Biffen, Welpdale, Alfred Yule and Maud and Dora Milvane, the problem of making or otherwise acquiring money dominates and in some cases destroys the lives, or the lives of Gissing's characters. And importantly, the solutions many of them pursue involve literary work, either as authors, critics, journalists or instructors. Moreover, the novel stages a set of debates about the place and value of literature in late Victorian Britain and raises questions about the literary marketplace of 1882 when the novel is set and its apparent indifference to artistic merit. In the novel's opening chapter, we meet Jasper Milvane, uh, a cynical and calculating character who's determined to achieve financial success as a writer, who here compares himself to his friend Edwin Reardon in a conversation with his sisters, Dora and Maud. You have no faith, he says, but understand the difference between a man like Reardon and a man like me. He is the old type of unpractical artist. I am the literary man of 1882. He won't make concessions or rather he can't make them. He can't supply the market. I, well, you may say at present do nothing, but that's a great mistake. I am learning my business. Literature nowadays is a trade. He goes on then to say that Reardon is, 
is behind his age. He sells a manuscript as if he lived in Sam Johnson's Grub Street. But our Grub Street of today is a quite different place. It knows, it knows what literary fare is in demand in every part of the world. Its inhabitants are men of business, however seedy. So there's, that, that's where the, the title of New Grub Street comes from as a, as a contrast to, to the Grub Street of, of Sam, Samuel Johnson. Um, and this, this passage, I think, is, is, is a really interesting one. It sets up the contrast that, that really animates the novel's plot and, and symbolic framework between Jasper Milvane on the one hand, who sees literature as a trade, as a matter of supplying appetizing goods, as, as, uh, as, as we see in the, in the, uh, in the quotation there, um, as, as satisfying the demands of the market. Um, and and on, 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 the, on the other hand, artists such as Edwin Reardon, who remain uh, committed, who seem committed to ideals beyond simply producing what will sell, but are characterised here by Milvane as unpractical and as behind the times. What what's I think especially interesting here is that in ways that prefigure the language of contemporary neoliberalism, the, the market is framed as a kind of inevitable, if, if ultimately undesirable fact of life. For, for Milvane here, literature is a business, however seedy. So he seems sort of um, distance him, himself from it to an extent and say, you know, this is, I, I agree that this is not very nice, but it's, you know, what can you do? It's, it's the way the world is. Um, and as, as Mark Fisher described it, 21st century, what, what he called 21st century capitalist realism requires precisely this kind of response, a sort of shrug of the shoulders and an acceptance that, well, this is the way things are now. Um, in, in Fisher's words, this, this sense of resignation, of fatalism, is crucial to the realism of, of capitalist realism. So while Gissinger's novel, as noted above, is, is apparently structured around, around the contrast between Jasper Milvane's willingness to supply the market and Reardon, Reardon's inability to do so. Um, Reardon, along with his friend and fellow struggling novelist artist, Harold Biffen, are, are similarly presented to the reader in terms of, of, of a kind of resigned acceptance of the inescapable dominance of, 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 a, of the market, again, as a, as a sort of force of nature. Um, so this is a passage from, from much later on in the novel where the, where the narrator um, pauses at the opening of a chapter to say, the, the chances are that you, you and so addresses the, the, the reader in the second person, that you have neither understanding nor sympathy for men such as Edwin Reardon and Harold Griffin. They merely provoke you. You are made angrily contemptuous by their failure to get on. Why don't they bestir themselves, push and bustle, welcome kicks so long as halfpence follow, make place in the world's eye, in short, take a leaf from the book of Mr. Jasper Milvey. But try to imagine a personality wholly unfitted for the rough and tumble of the world's labour market. These two were richly endowed with the kindly and imaginative virtues. If fate threw them amid incongruous circumstances, is their endowment of less value? You scorn their passivity, but it was their nature and their merit to be passive. Gifted with independent means, each of them would have taken quite a different aspect in your eyes. So I think this is this is really quite interesting too, in that um, the narrator seems to be saying, well, you know, Biffin and Reardon would have got on fine if they'd have if they'd have if their circumstances had been different. If they'd if they'd um, been gifted with independent means, they they would have been fine, and you would have seen them quite differently. So unlike the unforgiving Jasper Milvane, G Gissing's narrator is asking us to look upon Reardon and Biffin with a sympathetic eye. Their inability to supply the literary market with the goods it demands and their their unfittedness for the world's labour market is not something for which they can be blamed, since these failures are simply and unavoidably attributed to their nature. Nevertheless, while the novel satirises and critiques the turning of literature into a trade, it continues in this passage and, and throughout to present the, the market then as, as a, a sort of inevitable and indeed a natural phenomenon. The, and, and I think these references to nature and to the fitness or not of, of, of Gissing's characters, 
that their, their fitness or not of, to, for survival in the harsh environment of the literary marketplace should alert us to another important aspect of New Grubstreet's generic composition, and, and namely that's its strain of, of literary naturalism. Um, so if we look again to the Oxford Companion to English Literature, uh, again, as, as, as I'm just using this as a kind of textbook um, definition, this and this tells us that naturalism developed the existing tradition of realism in the direction of fully documented accuracy of representation of social and economic circumstances. So again, I think there's a there's a, a sort of an appeal to a kind of trustworthiness in, in this that there's, that there's again this sense of fully documented accuracy. This is this is um, this is even more um, credible, if you like, than 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 standard realism. Um, but with um, an attention to economic circumstances, with additional also deterministic emphasis on the supposed scientific laws of human behaviour, understood to be governed by heredity and economic necessity. So here again, there's money featuring prominently, money, money and economic circumstances, and, and then economic necessity mentioned in close succession within the same sentence. Um, and, and as we've seen, as noted above, economic circumstances certainly dominate the plot of New Grub Street, um, driving some characters towards poverty and death and others towards comfort and, and a, a kind of qualified success. Um, that, um, and, and, you know, if you don't know the book, I'll, I'll leave it to you at this point to guess whether it's Jasper Milvane or Edwin Ridden that, that achieves that success. Um, but um, Furthermore, as we, as we saw in the passage just from the novel just cited above, it's the, it's the characters' natures that, that push them inevitably towards either painless failure or victorious wealth, according to an inexorable Darwinian logic. And as Sally Ledger argues, um, Darwin's theory of evolution was without doubt the single most important factor in the development of the naturalist school. One of the major implications of evolutionary theory is that humans are only slightly above the level of animals. Another is that animal and human life is a continuous struggle. So the continuous struggle to succeed in, in Jasper Milvane's Grub Street of today, in which only those whose, those, those whose nature has fitted with the means to survive can do so, lends a grim and indeed a kind of fatalistic sense of determinis determinism to the economic successes or failures of the, these protagonists. Within, within the world of Gissing's novel, Reardon's friend Harold Biffen, um, I've mentioned, is, is I think the clearest example of a, of a literary naturalist. Um, although he isn't named as such in the text, he's consistently described by the narrator as the, the realist. Um, however, the, the novel that he's described as working on, which is a kind of labour of love called Mr. Bailey Grocer, is dismissed on its publication by one reviewer as a pretentious, uh, so this is a quote from the book, a pretentious book of the genre ennuyant, um, a phrase which is deliberately su suggestive, I think, of French literature and more specifically of Zola, of course, the, the leading figure of the naturalist movement. And um, earlier on in the novel, um, in a conversation with Reed and Biffen explains his aims as a writer and, and interestingly here um, he kind of distances himself from, from Zola who he presents as a tragedian much more, uh, more, more, than, more than a realist um, like himself. So he says what I, what I really aim at is an absolute realism in the sphere of the ignobly decent. The field as I understand it is a new one. I don't know any writer who's treated ordinary vulgar life with fidelity and seriousness. So again, fidelity, credibility, terms that, that are all evocative, again, of, of, of a kind of trustworthiness. Um, so he dismisses Zola writes tragedies. His, his vilest figures become heroic from the place they fill in a strongly imagined drama. So again, this uh, an evocation of, of heroism or, or, or not. So I want to deal with the essentially unheroic with day-to-day -day life of that vast majority of people that are at the mercy of paltry circumstance. And then an interesting mention of Dickens. He said Dickens understood the possibility of such work, but his tendency to melodrama on the one hand and his humour on the other prevented him from thinking of it. 
Um, and there's a certain irony, I think, attached to Biffin's rejection of melodrama here, since he is, in fact, the character who's given New Grub Street's most melodra melodramatic episode um, in the whole of the book. When, when a fire breaks out in the building where he lives, Biffin embarks on a daring rescue mission, not to save a person, though, but to salvage, salvage the unpublished manuscript of Mr. Bailey Grocer from the flames. Um, and, and quoted from the book, he ends up desperate with the dread of losing his manuscript, his toil, his one hope. The realist scarcely stayed to listen to a warning that the fumes were impassable. And my contention here is that the, the a kind of eruption of the melodramatic mode in the midst of a text and in relation to a character hitherto committed to realist principles is evidence of the problematics and the dynamics of trust that I'm suggesting more broadly are fundamental elements of, of the literary. Indeed, this moment of, of outright melodrama, Biffin's, Biffin's kind of dramatic um, chase to, or melodramatic chase to rescue his manuscript, um, this, this I think can serve to sort of draw our, our attention to some perhaps more subtle ways in which the melodramatic mode makes itself felt in Gissing's text. Ben Singer again notes that in classical melodrama, melodrama chance rather, uh, this is quote, quoting, chance rather than causal action on the part of the protagonist, um, it, it's, it's chance rather than causal action on the part of the protagonist that brings about the villain's demise and saves the day. The villain might be struck by a bolt of lightning or fall into a grain silo or be buried under an avalanche. The singer goes on to suggest that these chance events nevertheless function as a form of, quote, cosmic moral adjudication, which serves to reinforce melodrama's um, dependency on, on a, on a polarising moral framework of good and evil and, and of um, of, of just rewards to the uh, heroes and, and punishment for the villains. Aside though from, um, from, from Biffen's melodramatic brush with death by fire, chance events are more likely to take the form in, in New Grub Street of, of um, financial windfalls or, or perhaps failed investments. And it's worth, just as an aside, thinks, noting that the frequency with which this tends to happen in, in, in Victorian novels, that, that plots are often driven by, um, by such devices of plotting as, as a kind of sudden inheritance or, or money suddenly vanishes as the result of, of, of natural fluctuations in markets. Um, um, so, and, and I think uh, indeed, just despite his kind of calculating attitude, um, in the end, it's really largely by chance that, that Jasper Milvane succeeds and, and that Reardon fails. The final chapter of the novel is even called Rewards. Um, and, and this is, I think, clearly a, a sort of mocking the sense of melodramatic moral adjudication that's referred to by Singer. How, however, I think even if the melodramatic mode is, is evoked ironically at various points in New Grub Street, I argue that this functions to disrupt the reader's trust in the text uh, which is established early on in the novel on the basis of its adhere adherence to and indeed its open discussion of the principles of realism. Um, at this point, though, I want to um, sort of loop back to the to the question of literary naturalism, sort of move, moving away from melodrama, and um, to um, kind of a, a specific link between naturalist writing that was made by Walter Ben Michaels in his influential book, The Gold Standard and the Logic of Naturalism in 1987. Um, and um, here Michaels discusses the debates that raged in the US in the late 19th century, referring specifically to the gold bugs who were, who were arguing at the time vociferously for, for gold money um, and who regarded paper money that, that was favored by greenbacks, uh, as they were termed, as, as illegitimate. So there was this argument over the legitimacy of, of, of paper money versus uh, money that were based on precious money based on precious metals. For gold bugs, according to Michaels, the, the moneyless society, but one removed from barbarism, um, uh, a, a, as, as David Wells, who was an American civil servant and journalist, put it, was 
the inevitable starting point for an evolutionary history of finance that culminated in what numerous writers Wells among them called the natural selection of gold as money. Um, and I think I, I want to come, but come back to this evolutionary story of money a little later on. But for now, I think it's worth noting that, um, that Michaels goes on to describe naturalist fiction as, quote, the working out of a set of conflicts between material and representation, hard money and soft. In other words, naturalist writing did not constitute a kind of straightforward mirroring of the way monetary tokens either do or don't function to represent pieces of metal, but were kind of worried continuously over these matters, turning them over at the level of form as well as within the plots of numerous texts. Other critics, though, have perhaps not seen the relationship between gold money and realist fiction in, in quite such, uh, in quite so subtle terms. In a frequently quoted passage, Jean-Joseph Gou asks, was it purely by chance that the crisis of realism in the novel and in painting coincided with the end of gold money, or that the birth of abstract art coincided with the shocking invention of inconvertible monetary signs now in general use? Can we not see in this double crisis of money and language the collapse of guarantees and frames of reference, uh, a rupture between sign and thing, undermining representation and ushering in the age of the floating signifier. Patrick Brantlinger also connects money and fiction as signifying systems. Money and fiction both represent representational systems relying on credit, he says, are also often interchangeable. Money is the fiction of gold or of absolute value, fiction as a commodity exchangeable for money. And um, Brantling is not the only critic to regard money itself as a, as a kind of fiction. The sociologist Nigel Dodd argues in The Social Life of Money from 2014 that money, quote, is, a, is essentially a fiction, a socially powerful and socially necessary illusion. And uh, Simon James describes money in, in terms of the willing suspension of disbelief. Money partly shares fiction's imaginary status. The reader knows that fiction is not real, but disbelief must be partially suspended to allow the experience of reading to function satisfactorily. Money is also an imaginary contingency. The mind knows that money is not real either, but for ordinary economic life to, to function normally, this knowledge must be repressed. Um, and, Br and Brandlinger goes on to say later on in his book that a realistic novel structurally and metaphorically implies that it is a signifier completely determined by or faithful to its signified social reality. Just as a photograph seems to seems exactly to produce its subject without mediation or interpretation, in this way the realistic novel claims not to be like paper or paper credit or counterfeit money, but rather like gold bullion itself. Um, I think if there was a bit more time to unpick at some of this, um, particularly these references to signified and, and to, 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 to signifier and the signified, um, which um, it, it clear, clearly is a, a references to, to Ferdinand de Saussure's theory of language. Um, I think, yeah, if there was a bit more time, it would be worth, it would be worth unpicking a bit that, that um, the, um, the references by Brantlinger and Gu also to signifiers and signified. Um, might be regarded as slightly problematic in that Th Saussure's theory of language is very specifically not a system of signs for things. Um, it, it's not a, and, and signif the, 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 the signified is a concept within the system of language, not something outside of it. So we could perhaps take issue with the, the equation that's being made there between the way linguistic signs represent things and the way money represents gold. Um, and um, uh, however, I think there's a more fundamental issue with the very idea that money does or ever did represent gold or any other precious metal. And it's to this issue that uh, I now want to, um, to turn off a little bit. Um, so the economist Randall Ray notes that, quote, money is arguably the most difficult and controversial subject in macroeconomics. What is money? What role does it play? And what should policy do? about it are the questions that have busied most macroeconomists from the very beginning. And on a similar note, Joe Guinan has pointed out in a, in a 2014 article that, 
Quote, Schumpeter confessed to never having understood money to his own satisfaction, while Keynes claimed to know of only three people who really grasped it. In this context, perhaps it's surprising to note that most mainstream economics textbooks devote surprisingly little attention to the topic of money, to its nature or its origins. On the other hand, we might draw an analogy here between economics and my own field of literary studies and ask how much time most of us spend asking what literature is or thinking about how we know, you know, how we know what literature is and what it isn't. Perhaps then both literary studies and in, in, in both literary studies and in economics, we take it for granted that we know in our respective fields what what literature is or what money is or um, or perhaps we just seem to know what they are through a kind of intuitive process alone. So we don't really need to spend that much of our time attending to these questions. But at the beginning of the singularity of literature, Attridge emphasizes that, quote, all attempts to the, since the Renaissance to determine the difference between literary and non-literary language have failed and that this is a necessary failure, one by which literature as a cultural practice has been continually constituted. So this may be a point at which the two disciplines need to part company, since while the impossibility of defining literature can be regarded in, in Atrogean terms as a kind of fundamental energising force, our lack of understanding of money could have seriously damaging consequences. Um, and in recent years, at least since the global financial crisis of 2007 to 8, the origins and the nature of money has been subjected to renewed and sustained attention. One of the uh, voices that's been most widely attended to on this matter is that of the late anthropologist David Graeber, whose 2014 tome debt, the first 5,000 years, set out, among other things, to challenge the story of money that's most often told by mainstream economists, which describes money as originating in primitive markets in which barter was the basis on which goods were exchanged. So you have bread, I've got some potatoes, I offer you three spuds for a loaf of bread, something like that. Um, but but barter is, is notoriously inefficient, so the story goes, since it relies on what's known as the double coincidence of want. So I have to want bread at the same time that you want potatoes uh, and money. So the story continues was, was kind of invented to solve this problem. And, and, and so, so again, through a process, the process of natural selection, that was noted above by Walter Ben Michaels, precious metals and in particular gold were chosen as, to, as the, the sort of ideal form of money. But as Graeber puts it, the story of barter, and I think it's interesting that it is a story as well, I haven't got time to really talk about that, but from a, from a literary studies point of view, the, the fact that money is, is, is explained through a story is interesting. Um, the story of barter has become the founding myth of our economic of our system of economic relations. It's so deeply established in common sense that most people on earth couldn't imagine any other way that money could possibly have come about. The problem is there's no evidence that it ever happened and an enormous amount of evidence suggesting it did not. But while Graeber's work is responsible for bringing this issue, I think, to widespread attention in the last last decade or so. Um, he's far from the only scholar to have made this point. And in his 1998 book, Understanding Modern Money, for example, Randall Ray points out that there is no evidence that markets operated on the basis of barter. There's no evidence that the value of early coins was determined by certain fixed weights of precious metals. And there's no evidence that credit has grown up as an e economizing substitute for precious metal coins for use as a medium of exchange. Both Graeber and Ray draw on much earlier work that can be traced back at least as far as the early 20th century to Alfred Michelinus's credit theory of money and Georg Friedrich Knapp's state theory of money. Nevertheless, it's telling that these ideas have taken on a new urgency over the last decade or so. Indeed, the idea that money, monetary tokens are not based on anything as tangible and solid as lumps of precious metal, even when we know that most of our transactions, especially during the last year, have been virtual ones, this idea can be deeply disconcerting in the, in the kind of fevered way in which the notion of a magic money tree has been used in recent years to ridicule political opponents is, I would suggest, a reflection of a, a widespread difficulty to grasp what money is and, and, and what perhaps what it's always been, a social relation, and as I would want to frame it, an expression of trust, not a thing at all. One of the very 
Important points to take away from Graver's and Ray's work, however, is that there's no evidence to support the widespread belief among economists that money originally comes from the, the market again. And furthermore, the ideas that follow from this, that markets are themselves somehow natural and unavoidable and inevitable, and that, that gold money then again was the product of a process of natural selection. Um, so, so these ideas, I think, can, can be now seen as equally suspect. I would argue, however, that despite the way that New Grove Street, as we've already seen, reinforces the idea of a natural and, and an inevitable literary marketplace, um, as discussed earlier, it, it, it does contain brief glimpses of, a, of another understanding of money altogether, one that is indeed somewhat magical. In the novel's 15th chapter, an increasingly penniless Reardon makes the following observations to his wife Amy after an open carriage, uh, carriage passes them in the street. If one was rich as those people, they pass so close to us, they see us and we see them, but the distance between us is infinity. They don't belong to the same world as we poor wretches. They see everything in a different light. They have powers which would seem supernatural if we were suddenly endowed with them. I've often stood staring at houses like these until I couldn't believe that the people owning them were mere human beings like myself. The power of money is so hard to realise. If one who uh, one who who never had it marvels at the completeness with which it transforms every detail of life. To be sure, most rich people don't understand their happiness. If they did, they would move and talk like gods, which indeed they are. So I think there's a number of really interesting things about this moment in the text of course Reardon's phrase the power of money is so hard to realize gives my paper its title um, and I don't think it's too much of an indulgence in wordplay to suggest that the problem of of real realizing the power of money in the sense of making it making real is a problem that, that Gissing's novel like much Victorian risk fiction continually struggles over similarly I think it is telling that Reardon can only conceive of the power of money at this point as a kind of magic those, those that have it are granted supernatural powers and it enables them to move and talk like gods. So perhaps one of the reasons that money seems magical is something to do with its intangibility. It's, it's, it is ungraspable, both in a kind of literal and in a figurative sense. And, and this, I would argue, is also something to do with its dependence upon trust. As Mary Meller puts it in her recent book, Money, Myths, Truths and Alternatives, people must believe in the magic that the numbers in their bank accounts represent real purchasing power or means of paying their obligations such as tax. The moneyness of money reflects the trust people have in it, not the form and structure of the money itself. This only raises further question on what is, on what is that trust based? What is it that is being trusted? Um, and, and, and Ray also points to the role of trust underpinning money, sometimes understood only to be relevant in discussions of, of fiat money, which in other words, is money that's, that's not backed by any commodity as such as gold. So there's sometimes the, the, the story is told. So yeah, so we used to have gold money, we used to have a gold standard. Then um, in, in America, in, in, in American terms, the, the gold standard was abandoned in the 70s. And so since then we've had fiat money since then, money's been backed by trust. But Ray points out that um, that um, so Ray's um, position is is a um, is that, that it's tax liabilities that drive the value of money. Um, but it's it's so it's necessary that, that one trusts the state that the state will impose and enforce a tax liability payable in the form of state money. However, this is just as true of commodity money as it is of fiat money. So there's no significant difference, he argues, between the trust involved in trusting fiat money as there is in trusting a full full bodied coin, if you like, by which he means a coin that's made of the of solid gold, that's made of the, of the quantity of precious metal that that it's is its nominal value. So even uh, even a coin, a coin made of solid gold still requires trust. Um, and, and as um, uh, Mella puts it again, money uh, is the most social of phenomena at which level, uh, at whatever level it exists, money is pure trust. But in modern ec economies, it's shrouded in mist. Um, 
one one problem though i think with the idea of money as trust based is that it, it can still kind of easily be turned back to a to, to being seen in a in a purely kind of transactional market driven sense i trust you to provide me with something and you trust me to to give you a monetary token in return so i want to try and conclude um as briefly as i can because i'm running out of time um with a, a, to suggest a, a different way of regarding trust as an inherently cooperative process um, is one that brings us back to literature and, and and I think that literature has powerful lessons to teach us about how how we might think of this process of trusting in relation to to money too. So Russell Russell Hardin um, says uh, in his book Trust from 2006 that um, trust is um, uh, as I say, an, an inherently kind of cooperative process. Um, that to, to say I trust you in some context, to say I think you are or will be trustworthy. The value of trustworthiness is that it makes social cooperation easier and even possible. And um, Jonathan Culler um, has talked about and, and drawn on the linguistic philosopher H.R. Grice in talking about the cooperative principle that's that's fundamental to, to communication to the way language works again that we can communicate with, with each other largely because of a cooperative principle um that again i would suggest is 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 deeply implicated in in questions of trust um but when we confront a work of literature color says the cooperative principle is hyper protected and that we can we go a long way in accepting obscurity disjunction or apparent irrelevance on the assumption that these are deliberate and will turn out to be in some way efficacious um so just to to finish i wanted to come back to um some ideas of Derek Attridge's which I've got a really long quote there which I won't um I won't read out but um the the way that that coming back to the question of responsible reading that I mentioned earlier of, of, of uh that the reading responsibly requires a kind of trusting a a um um and, and an acceptance of the of the otherness and the opening oneself up to the other as Attridge puts it uh, in in the quote here in the middle I, I trust the other before I know what the other will bring um, and the, the sort of trust then that Attridge sees as important part of the reading process um, is a, again an inherently cooperative one I would suggest so drawing on Attridge's literary theory and the specific role of trust that's foregrounded here I want to suggest that reconfiguring our sense of the kind of trust that's involved in using money and in uh, uh, seeing this as something closer to the kind of trust that's involved in reading literature and that's also involved in dealing with a text like New Grub Street where there's a, a kind of disruption to our sense of 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 its generic stability that that I've argued is, is uh, to do with trust too. Um, so this might help us think of money in new and different ways too. Uh, as Scott Ferguson puts it in his 2018 book, Declarations of Dependence, Money, Aesthetics and the Politics of Care, care is a problem of money in the first and last instance. And again, this question of care and responsibility and cooperativeness that I'm arguing are all related and bound up with trust. Um, I think, as, again, can, can, can help us importantly to, to think of money and literature uh, in different ways. It, it seems increasingly likely that if we stand any chance of avoiding catastrophic climate change or indeed of addressing the inequalities that have come starkly into view in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, we're going to need to seek out new ways of understanding money. And I argue that literary studies and the humanities more broadly can make a vital contribution to this project. <laughs>